Hebrews chapter 12, and beginning in verse 1. And ladies and gentlemen, this is the word of God. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now also to the book of Philippians and chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Let's pray. Our God, be exalted. We pray that you would write the truth of your word on our hearts today. And in this, be glorified. We thank you in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. There's actually nothing in our Bibles that tells us to make resolutions at the beginning of each new year. And all God's people said, <laughs> well, let that be said. However, the ending of a year and the beginning of another one does give us reason to pause, to reflect. In light of this as a time marker on our lives, we thank God for the year that's behind us and look ahead to the providence of God in the new year. We're another year closer to our leaving this world. And it's good to reflect on that. It's a good time to evaluate. And the Bible does tell us to do that. Hear these words from Psalm 90, verse 12. So, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. In other words, gain wisdom in the light of the number of our days, in the light of passing years. This life is not forever. We don't know when our lives will end. So Lord, teach us to live life in the light of the brevity of life and in the light of eternity. The ending of the year and the beginning of another one does make us reflect on life, on the brevity of life, and to gain wisdom in the light of this reality. The Living Bible puts those words in this way. Teach us to number our days and recognize how few they are. Help us to spend them as we should. Ephesians 5 tells us, Be careful how you live. Make the most of your time, for the days are evil. So, there's not a Bible verse that says, Do this at the end of the year and the beginning of another one. But while that is the case, self-evaluation is certainly a principle taught in Scripture, and I can't think of a better time to do this. New Year's, and also when our birthday comes each year. When one ends and another begins in terms of years, 
we should ask things like this. What did we do this last year? Are there things in our lives we need to eliminate? The Bible says, put these things on, take these things off. Are there things we ought to put on and things we ought to take off? As we go back to the book of Hebrews now, we see in chapter 12, verse 1, the word therefore. And you know this, whenever you see the word therefore, you are to ask, what is it therefore? And on the basis that all has come before in chapter 11, which is the message, the chapter on faith, and the people that inspire us as they uh, testify to the God who kept them in faith in good times and hard times, and there were both. Times when they were able to subdue kingdoms and uh, see miracles at work, and times when they endured, seeing him who is invisible as they faced hardship and even death for the cause of the God they served. So they are inspiring, and then chapter 12 comes along and says, Therefore, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, these are not uh, people in heaven looking down on us. These are the witnesses in context, the witnesses that we've just read about in chapter 11. They're witnesses. They're testifying. God is able to keep you in faith, and that faith will allow you to do God's will. These people are able to testify as witnesses in God's courtroom, and there's so many of them that they are a cloud of witnesses, and we read of them in Hebrews 11. And we're surrounded by these because they've just been mentioned, but then it basically doesn't say, now look to them. It says, no, be inspired by them, but now let us lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. In other words, you've seen them, but don't look at them. Look beyond them to Jesus. Look to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. And so we had to ask ourselves, lay aside every weight. What's that? And sin. Well, what's that? Are there weights? Are there sins we need to lay aside? Sins, we can equally say, I think amongst us, uh, easily recognize that our conscience shouts when we sin. We know it. We've blown it. But with weights, on the other hand, they're far less easy to recognize. They're not sinful in themselves, but things that can hinder us in our race. That race is the Christian race. Now, you and I would never expect to see a runner in a marathon race wearing a winter jacket, jeans, boots, and carrying a suitcase. Won't happen. No, the marathon runner is stripped down, and he is so intentionally for the sake of the race. And that's the imagery here. Get rid of the sin and get rid of the weights that would entangle you for the race you're called to run. Successful runners possess a runner's mindset. And so should we. That's the message of Hebrews 12, the opening verses there. We've already had read in our service Matthew chapter 6. You remember verse 33? But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things. In context, those things are the essentials of life. This is not luxury yachts. This is not the mansion on the hill. This is the essentials of life, like food, like drink, like clothing. All these things will be added to you. But how do we do that? 
Seek first the kingdom of God. You ever thought about that? How do I do that? You see, the kingdom is not found on a map. The kingdom is not found in an earthly location. It's not marked out by a national boundary. You can't find it on a map. It's not someplace between, say, Poland and Ukraine. No. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. John 18, 36. The word kingdom is formed from two words that are sandwiched together. The word king and the word domain. Kingdom. The domain of the king. You can't have a kingdom without a king, and that king has a domain in which he reigns and rules. And in history, that has been marked out by political boundary, but not so in the kingdom of God. Jesus owns everything. He has all authority. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. That covers it. So the kingdom is the domain of the king. And for us to seek first the kingdom of God means to seek his rule, coming under his authority. It's hearing his word and complying. Jesus said it this way in Luke 6, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I'll show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock and when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. We can deceive ourselves as James Recorded in chapter 1, verse 22. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. We can deceive ourselves by saying, Oh, I've got a DVD on that subject. I've got a CD on. I, I can stream a whole bunch of teachings on that subject. I, I know that. I know the Greek word for that. But have we done what the message tells us to do? I knew a man who could quote the Greek of husband, husbands love your wives, but he's a million miles away from it in terms of his life. So knowledge is not enough, it's doing what we know to do. I want to ask you, are you doing what you know to do? You don't have to answer out loud, and if you say yes, your wife's going to uh, give you a nudge and say, keep quiet, you liar. But the Bible says, seek first. In other words, make this your highest priority, the kingdom of God, to come under the rule of the king. Over and above everything else, this is to be the Christian's pursuit. Jesus also said, John chapter 14, verse 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. Now, Jesus' commandments are not merely the words he personally spoke, the words we see in red in some of our Bibles, but his words come through the inspired writers of the New Testament. If you and I have a problem with the apostles, like Peter and Paul and John and so on, we've actually got a problem with Jesus, the one who called them as apostles, sent them, and they are writing under the influence of the Holy Spirit for Jesus. They're serving him. And so to have a problem with them is to have a problem with Jesus. It's Jesus through Paul. It's Jesus through John. It's Jesus through Peter. Now, 
For us, how do we seek the kingdom of God? It's coming under his rule, finding out what the word of God says and intentionally coming under it, saying, yes, I will do that. I will come under his rule. That is how we seek the kingdom of God, rather than packing our sandwiches and try to find this location somewhere in Europe, Africa, Asia, or South America. You won't find the kingdom on a map You find the kingdom when you find out what Jesus says and you come under that in your and my life. Let's go to Philippians now, chapter 2. And I want to deal with a verse that has tripped up many a Christian because they read into it something that is not actually in the text. And I hope to provide some clarity. One of the ways we pursue the kingdom of God is having the Lord's Day and worship on the Lord's Day as a priority. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. In other words, this is the only place, I think, in the New Testament where we see the word habit, and it basically means this, don't get into the bad habit of missing the gathered assembly. Make it a priority, and all the more as you see signs of the coming of Jesus. All right, that's one way we seek the kingdom of God. Now let's go to Philippians 2, verse 12. We see another therefore. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, notice it doesn't say work out everybody else's salvation. That guy, he's really saved. I've got questions about him. No, this is to look internally, to make a self-evaluation. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Let's go through that text. It reads this way, work out your own salvation. You ever been perturbed when you read that and you think, I thought we're saved by grace alone through faith, alone in Christ, alone. And now we've got to work this thing out. We've got to work for salvation. Well, notice it does not say work for your salvation. It's not in the text. It does not say work for your salvation. No. Work out your own salvation. How's that a phrase that we can understand? Well, in light of the words that follow, we have an explanation. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. All right, here's what we know as we read our Bibles. God's work in us is in major categories twofold. First of all, it's God's act of regeneration in the heart. God is the one who accomplishes the new birth. We, as fallen creatures, not seeking God, not wanting Him, will not apply for a heart transplant. We love our stony heart. We love our sin. We have different flavors of sin, and for some it's this thing, and for others it's another thing, but we love our sin, and what we don't love is the God of the Bible, and we don't love his gospel. And so if you find yourself, you love God and you love his gospel, God's been very kind to you. He's given you a new heart. That's the activity of God. That's all him. It's by the work of the Holy Spirit, which 
as John chapter 3, verses 8 and 9 describes, is like the wind. It's invisible to us, but it has dramatic effects, and it happens according to His will. That's the first work He does, regeneration, and that is what we call a monogistic work. You've been here a long time enough, I'm sure, to know that word monogism. We have mono, which means one, stereo, which means two, right? So mono means one power working. So it's all by his power. How much choice did you have in your physical birth? You were never interviewed beforehand and saying, now we need you to sign the paperwork. We're going to give you life on planet Earth, but we can't do that as uh, daddy and mommy without your permission. That's not what happened, right? You came because of the will of someone else. So it is, you're in the kingdom through the will of God, through his accomplishment in achieving new birth. Praise the Lord. But the second work of grace is the work of sanctification, which is a cooperative venture. It's God and us together. It's you and I cooperating with the grace of God so that God says pray and we pray. God says read my word, we read his word. Have you noticed God doesn't read the Bible for you? You do that. And so those are two things that happen inside us. And so we read this phrase, work out your own salvation. God works in us, first of all, regeneration, then sanctification. And the work of the Holy Spirit in us produces what we call the fruit of the Spirit. See it this way. It's the fruit of the fact that we're alive spiritually and that the Holy Spirit is in there. If someone says, I'm a Christian, I have the Holy Spirit, and there's no desire to be holy... We need a question. Now, we are not the authority here. God is. But we need a question. There should be alarm bells going off in the person and in those that hear the testimony. I'm a Christian, but there's no love of the truth. There's no desire to know and understand the Scripture. There's nothing there. There's no pulse spiritually. Someone without a pulse needs resurrection. And that's what the born-again experience is. We were dead, now we're alive. So, work out your own salvation. What does all that mean? Well, that's what we're getting to. The work of the Holy Spirit is the product, the fruit of the Holy Spirit being present. It's the fruit of the Spirit being in us. The works of the flesh, they're evident. We have that according to the nature that we found ourselves inheriting from Adam. Flesh gives birth to flesh. The Spirit, capital S, the Holy Spirit gives birth to our human heart, our human spirit. And the result is fruit. Now, you don't go to your tree that may be at the backyard and get a camera and get microphone equipment and try to hear that tree groaning that fruit may come. It's just a natural byproduct, if it's healthy, to produce fruit. You don't get microphone equipment and here it says, I'm really trying to produce an apple. If I produce an apple, I'll be a tree. No, it's because it's a tree and it's healthy, 
it produces apples if it's an apple tree. And so the fruit of the Holy Spirit's activity is love, where there wasn't love before. Joy, where there wasn't joy before. Peace, when there was nothing like peace there before. And on and on we go. It's the fruit of the Holy Spirit's activity. So two ways in which he works in us, regeneration and sanctification. You're a well-taught church, amen? Praise the Lord. You know these things. So God works in us, producing the fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's fruit or evidence of the Holy Spirit's work, and that is what? A changed life. Now, we're not changed completely, but if there's been no change, you've been five years as a Christian, and you're just as ornery as you ever were before. There's no growth in your Christian life. Now, I'm not the ultimate judge, but we're not ultimate judges, but we can be fruit inspectors. Jesus said, by their CDs you shall know them. No, by their fruit you will know them, the true and the false. Now, here's what I want to say. The changed life does not give us right standing with God. Today is December 31st. I accomplished my goal at the start of the year, read through the Bible in a year, and read the New Testament twice, the Old Testament once. And I've done it. December 31st, I did it, God. And God says, that's great, but you have no greater standing with me on December 31st this year than on January 1st. You and I are saved by the grace of God alone, and our standing is in grace, not by works. Thank God for that. Can you say amen? So God doesn't love me more because I achieve something spiritually. No, it's good for me. It's for my sanctification. But my standing with God is based on the blood of Jesus Christ plus nothing. It's all Him. We're not going to get to heaven and have a revised hymn book handed to us where we say, to God be most of the glory. No, to God be the glory, great things he has done. Worthy is the Lamb. Oh, plus all the saints' work, of course, we've got to mention that. No. The fruit of the Holy Spirit in us is a changed life. The changed life doesn't give us right standing with God. Jesus did that, and he did all of that in his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection. But since the Holy Spirit has come to dwell in us, there will be fruit to show that this is the case. I've been helped by many notes over the years, and I recently read the King James Version Study Bible along this line as we're reading Philippians chapter 2. And it reads this way regarding Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Christians must put energy into the outworking of their sanctification to grow in obedience. Did you hear that? Energy. We must put energy into the outworking of sanctification to grow in obedience. Regarding fear and trembling. Oh, fear and trembling, what does that mean? This means, according to this study Bible, these words demonstrate the care and seriousness the believer is to give to obedience. Believers are to work out or manifest obedience in selfless humility with caution and awareness. For it is God who works in you. Another note. The great hope and encouragement to the believer is that he is not 
left to himself, but is energized to obey God. So we put energy into it even as we're energized by God. God's at work. There needs to be a sign over your life. God is at work. We're not the finished articles. None of us have arrived this side of glory, but thank God, hopefully, we've left. If you think you've arrived, pray for you. But God, when he comes in, puts holy affections and he plants them in you, affections that were not present before you were born again. I remember looking at the Bible thinking, I'll never read this. There's nothing in there that is of interest to me. Something's changed. Have you noticed? Holy affections and holy power. The power to do the will of God. We don't expect the non-Christian to act like a Christian, but we expect the Christian to at least be haunted by sin when they sin. Right? We could sin freely before and we'd have no conviction going on. Really, nothing that would dissuade us from doing it again. But something in us, the Holy Spirit, rather someone in us, is the spirit of holiness, as he's called. And he works that in our life. Here's another note. God works in his children the willing and the doing of his good pleasure. It is the responsibility of the believer to obey God, and God graciously works in and empowers the believer to obey him. While we are active in sanctification, it's God's work. I've met many people who won't come to Christ because they don't think they can live the Christian life. Oh, it'll just be a week of trying to do a religious thing and after 10 days I'm going to have to give this up. It's not going to work. They're not factoring in the God factor. When God comes in, he puts new desires which overcome our natural desires and these God-given desires are stoked by the means of grace. So that Sunday by Sunday, by Friday we're flagging a little, Saturday we're at a low point, Sunday, oh, thank God, I'm being fed again, and I'm being stoked to live the Christian life. And we need one another in that task. Do you know sanctification is a community project? You can't live the Christian life by yourself. You need me, I need you, we need one another. You being present is an encouragement to everyone else because we know what you might be going through. Suddenly I do, some of you. Some of you haven't shared, but as a pastor, I live in the trenches. I don't run away to Milwaukee three times every week just to get away. And because I know it, and then I see you in church, they're under this burden, they're still here, and they're singing Amazing Grace. You have no idea what it does to my soul and for those around you who know what you're going through. They're going through this, and they're still with us praising God. Oh, what a Savior. Holy affections. He plants his desires in you that were not present before you were born again, and then holy power, the power to do the will of God. All right, what is the will of God? I'm glad you asked. First Thessalonians 4, verse 3. For this is the will of God. You ready? Here we go. Your sanctification. That's it. I come from a realm in the Christian community where we're looking for breadcrumbs to find the will of God. What's the will of God? All right, I've got three job offers. One's in Wisconsin, one's in Seattle, one's in Florida. As I turn the television on, would you show me something of your will? And you see 
commercial for coffee made in Seattle, Washington. Oh, what's the Lord saying? And then you're confused because you see a commercial for Disney World. Lord, what are you saying? And you're confused. You go to the pastor and he says, well, let's seek the Lord. And we go for a prophecy. I, the Lord, would say, I'm getting the letter W or something. That's not how you find the will of God. Here's how you find the will of God. Whatever is in accordance with sanctification for you and the family. Go to that place. Find out if there's a good church. If there's not, it's not the will of God for you. Well, that's kind of radical. Yeah, if all we had were our, were our Bible, we wouldn't be looking for these breadcrumbs. The Lord is not going to, at the end of your life, stand before you, you before him, and he says, look, I gave you 17 commercials about Seattle. Would you not get it? No, he's going to say, did you love your wife? Did you serve me? Did you find a good local church that would teach you the Bible? Or did you go where it simply was a monetary decision? The will of God for your and my life is our sanctification. And that should be priority. That's what we seek first. Amen. The kingdom of God. We'd have the mindset of a runner in Hebrews 12. You've seen these marathon runners. You think, they didn't just show up after eating pizza the last, last 30 nights. They are lean machines. They've been looking forward to this race. And they're in that race. And that becomes that mindset. Philippians 3 goes on like this. In chapter 3, if you turn there, verse 12. Not that I've already obtained. I haven't arrived. I've left, but I haven't arrived. Philippians 3.12. Or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider I've made it my own, but one thing I do. Oh, Priority. Not 18 things. One thing. This is it. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. In other words, there's a race and we don't know where the finish line is. For us, it could be tonight that it's the end of our life or a week from now, or a month from now, or a year from now, or a decade from now, or decades from now, we don't know when we're going to die or when the Lord Jesus will come. He's coming back whether you and I believe it or not. And so we have to have the mindset of a runner and a pressing runner who's straining for the tape. I'm sure you've seen it, where they're hoping that their torso, their chest, hits the tape before someone nearby does so that they win the race. That's the idea, pressing towards the tape. Well, I'm not sure I think that way. Well, look at verse 15. Let those who are mature think this way. There it is. <laughs> and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. So if you don't think this way, you're flat out wrong. <laughs> but ma mature people will get this. But it's okay because the Holy Spirit is in you, he'll convince this. He'll convince you of this. So there needs to be an intense longing and desire to conform to Christ in character. I want to ask you today, is that something you find in your heart? If you don't, you've every reason to fear and tremble. 
If there's no desire for holiness, if you know the will of God for your life and there's no interest to do it, be fearful and tremble. It's telling you something. Alert, alert, alert. Something's wrong. You pray, not God. You read your Bible, not God. But God plants in you the desire to do so and empowers you to do it. Ladies and gentlemen, you and I don't drift into Christ-likeness. We don't drift into holiness. D.A. Carson said these famous words, and I'm going to repeat them. People do not drift toward holiness apart from grace-driven effort. People do not gravitate towards godliness, prayer, obedience to Scripture, faith and delight in the Lord. We drift towards compromise and call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch towards prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we've escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves we've been liberated. One of my first jobs in life, I think I was 18 at the time, was an assistant welder in England. And it was a nine-month contract the company I was working for uh, had with what was a milk factory. Lots of pipes were to be put in place, and that meant lots of welding was needed. And so welders were needed, and assistant welders were needed. I was an assistant welder. I did everything but weld. I remember applying for the job and was told the hours, 5 a.m. to 7 p.m., seven days a week. They didn't tell me that in the advertising. Seven days. We want you here seven days a week. I said, I need Sundays off. I go to church. I was a marked man. The manager said, no. You have to work seven days. I said, needing a job, I won't take the job. I left the interview without the job. Four days later, the manager called me and says, you still want to work for those six days? I said, yes. He said, all right, you got the job. Sometimes you've got to stand for something. Lord's Day worship had to be a priority for my life. The long work days meant I was exhausted when I got home. How would I get time in the Word of God? Now, I was a marked man, and every Monday they said, okay, well, how was church? And they ridiculed me and persecuted me, me. But the great thing was at the end of this nine-month period, they thought I was being fired, and I wasn't. It was just the end of my contract with them. And they were petitioning the manager. They were going to leave their jobs if they got rid of me. It was wonderful. How would I have time in the Word? I resolved to earn enough money to buy a cassette player for my car. Now, that dates me. So that I could hear the Word of God on the way to work and the way back from work. And that's what I did. See, I, I get it. I know that there are de demands on our time. But here's the truth. We make time for what's important to us. When someone says, I didn't have the time, that's actually not true. We have 
the same amount of time as, as anyone else in our day. No one gets 24 hours, 8 minutes every day. We make time for what's important to us. Selah. Jesus said this, to whom much is given, much will be required. Luke 12, 48. There's no doubt of this in my mind. The Christian in America in the 21st century is armed with the greatest resources in which to know God than any other generation in any other place in all human history. Let me say that again. The Christian in America in this, the 21st century, is armed with the greatest resources in which to know God than at any other time or place in human history. The Bible translations we have in English, we've got so many we don't know which one to bring to church. The Christian books we have, the theological works available to us. What's available to us in the English language is stunning beyond words. Now, with the gospel as the hub of the wheel, all we do should be outworking grace, not a quest to get grace. Works are the fruit, not the root of our salvation. So I'm talking about gospel-driven holiness, gospel-driven pursuit. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 2. This is so familiar that I've wrestled with, well, do we go there? They know that. Well, it's good to hear things we know. Many times we read in our Bible uh, words like this, I know you know these things, but I'm reminding you of these things. We need good reminders. Look at Ephesians 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. All right. Salvation is by God's grace and faith. Salvation is by grace through faith. And even this is not our doing, it's God's gift. And it's not on the basis of works. Can you say amen? Amen. So we start holiness, the pursuit of holiness, from the home base of grace, not in order to gain grace. That's why God doesn't love me more at the end of the year than the beginning, because my standing's in grace. And grace, by its very definition, is undeserved. Undeserved favor. The gospel is a gospel of grace. Well, where do works come in? Well, that's the next verse. Verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. We're not saved by our works. Works refer to human action. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. What a miracle that is. We're a new creation in Christ Jesus. And we're created for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So works... The things we do pray, play no part in our salvation, but saved people are regenerate people who now can do good works in response out of gratitude for the grace that they've received. There are things for us to do, places to go, things to do. 
But those things, those human actions, are never the basis of us standing before God. I think I've underlined that. Martin Luther said it this way, God doesn't need your good works, your neighbor does. Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained, past tense, access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We stand in grace. You're saved by grace. Now, with grace as the basis of all our pursuits, run after God. Run after His will. Scripture is full of exhortation to grow, to learn, to know, to press, to strive. Do you remember the psalmist in Psalm 1? Blessed is the man. Do you remember that man? A description is made of him who does not do a number of things, but delights in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates month by month, day and night. Well, pastor, I have no time to meditate. Let me ask you, do you have time to worry? Well, we make time to worry, right? You know what worry is? It's meditation on the wrong thing. F-E-A-R, false expectations appearing real. I've wasted a lot of my time worrying, haven't you? If I wasn't worrying, I'd be worrying about the fact I wasn't worrying. Worry is meditation of fearful things. I've battled that most of my life. I come from a family of worriers, not warriors. And the answer, the remedy is, well, I'm going to try not to think about that. And I really try not to think about it, Pastor. No, that's actually impossible. The remedy is not to try to not think about something, but to think about something else. Philippians, on to the right. Chapter 4. Genesis, Exodus, Philippians. You can find it. Jumping into a passage, we're going to go to verse 8, finally. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's anything excellent, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, what's the command? Think about these things. This verse gives us an eight-filter test for our thinking. Have you checked the water around Phoenix and the metro area? Most of us recognize the need for a water filter, right? It eliminates the pollution and the poisons that are there so that over time it doesn't affect our body. And that's a good thing to have. Here's something that you and I need for our mind, an eight filter mechanism. Finally, brothers, whatever is true. Now, that first filter is a big part of the filter. We shouldn't be thinking about falsehood and lies and speculation and conspiracy theories. But we should ask, is this true? And if it doesn't pass the test, then we throw it out. We shouldn't think about that. 
Now, some things are true, but they shouldn't be thought about because of the next filter, honourable. If you fill your mind with statistics about how many people crash cars every day, you'll be fearful about driving. If you fill your mind with how many people did this in the last month, how many burglaries in your area, if you fill your mind with that, you'll never leave the house. You'll be in panic. You'll, if you fill your, mouth, your mind with certain news station whatevers, sit in front of that, and you're getting CNN, constantly negative news. You're going to be having a certain mindset. No, no, the runner needs to eliminate stuff that is not true and honorable. Many things are true, but is it honorable? Just because something's true and therefore passes the truth filter does not mean it's worthy of our meditation. Third filter, just. Fourth filter, pure. All right, that's most of our thinking has to be eliminated. Lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise. Once it's through all of those filters, all right, you can think about that. Think about these things. In teaching each of my children to drive, I've started by standing outside the car and saying, this car will not move unless you move it. It will not go anywhere unless you drive there. It will not by itself drive to the mall. You are in charge. You're the driver of the car. It'll go as fast as you wish. It will stop when you want it to stop. You are in charge. Ultimately, you and I are in charge of our thoughts. Other thoughts will assail you. And you and I are to stand at the gate of our mind and says, I'm letting you in, but I'm not letting you in. I'm letting this thought in, I'm going to meditate on it. I'm not going to let this thought in and meditate on that. It doesn't pass the eight-filter test. Ultimately, you and I are in charge of our thoughts. Martin Luther said, you cannot keep birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. You and I can't keep the devil from suggesting thoughts, but you can choose not to dwell or act on them. So you drive your thoughts, allowing the thoughts in that pass the eight-filter test. And now you know where I'm going. Scripture passes through all eight filters. Fill your mind with the Scripture. It's true. It's honorable. It's just it's pure, it's lovely, it's commendable, it's excellent, it's worthy of praise. Meditate on a theme. If you've got an anxiety about a certain thing, look at scripture on that. You study the providence of God if you're anxious and you'll come away saying, nothing's going to come into my life unless it passes through the filter of his will for my life. And should it pass through, he's going to work all these things for my good. That's a whole different view of life than living from panic to panic, anxiety to anxiety. Memorize a verse. Meditate on the attributes of God. Memorize a catechism, question and answer. 
meditate on the books of the Bible, know the themes, know the author's intent, the theme of each chapter. Make this new year your best year in the scripture. Do it with intention. And from a grace-driven understanding of the gospel. Lastly, think about the attributes of God. How do you do that? Find what God has revealed himself about himself. People often start sentences like this. To me, God is... Well, you're starting off in the wrong place. God has revealed himself, and he is only what he has revealed about himself. He's not three gods. He's not another god. There's only one god. He's the true god, and he's revealed himself. And if we think wrongly about him, it's because what he has revealed about himself is right, and every other thought is wrong. To me, God would never... Yeah, but has God ever done that in Scripture? And then the answer is, we need to challenge the thought that says he would never. He would never flood the earth. My God would never. He's already done it. He would never, really. He would never send anyone to hell. Read your Bible. You've got a different God. C.H. Spurgeon, we'll close with him. When you're a preacher and you're looking for something, you find Spurgeon, you find, I don't need to look anywhere else, that nails it. It's been said by someone that the proper study of mankind is man. I will not oppose the idea, but I believe it is equally true that the proper study of God's elect is God. The proper study of a Christian is the Godhead, the highest science the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God who he calls Father. There is something exceedingly improving to the mind in the contemplation of the divinity. It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. Other subjects can, we can compass and grapple with. In them we feel a kind of self-content and go our way with the thought, Behold, I am wise. But when we come to master this science, finding that our plumb line cannot sound its depth and that our eagle eye cannot see its height, we turn away with the thought that vain man would be wise, but he is like a wild ass's colt. And with solemn exclamation, I am but of yesterday and know nothing. No subject of contemplation will tend more to humble the mind than thoughts of God. But while the subject humbles the mind, it also expands it. He who often thinks of God will have a larger mind than the man who simply plods around this narrow globe. The most excellent study for expanding the soul is the science of Christ 
and of him crucified and the knowledge of the Godhead in the glorious Trinity. Nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing so magnify the whole soul of man as a devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of the deity. And whilst humbling and expanding, this subject is eminently consolatory, for there is, in contemplating Christ, a balm for every wound. In musing on the Father, there, it is a, there is a quietus for every grief, and in the influence of the Holy Ghost, there is the balsam of every sore. Would you lose, would you lose your sorrow? Would you drown your cares? Then go, plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in his immensity, and you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of sorrow and grief, so speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead. It is to that subject that I invite you this morning. That's just the start of his sermon. What a pursuit, a grace-driven pursuit based on the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The God, the second person of the Trinity, entered into this world, born of a virgin, living a sinless life, and dying on the cross for sinners like you and me. Rising again bodily from the dead, being raised by the Father to sit at the place of all authority in the universe so that anyone who repents of their sin and believes in Christ is saved now and forever. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the gospel. As you and I approach this new year, let it be a time when we teach ourselves to number our days and in light of it, based on the gospel, pursue the knowledge of the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for the Lord Jesus. We pray, Lord, that each of us would grow in godliness this next year so that you are more clear to us. We know you better. As Paul prayed, even as the apostle who knew you so well, that I may know him. There's still more to know. Lead us in this. Stir our hearts for this. We ask it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.